you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 17. We are going to uh, continue this morning our series in the study of Luke, uh, refocusing our attention on Jesus and his ministry, his life, and his teaching, and asking the question, how do we as disciples follow him? What impact uh, should his teaching and his life have on our lives? And this morning, we're going to use the first 19 verses, but I'll tell you right off the bat, if you're the kind of person that likes to go from verse 1 and right through the passage, you're going to be really frustrated this morning. We're going to meander around the first 19 verses in Luke 17. But I think when the dust settles, and if you'll be uh, patient with me, if you kind of like that linear progression, if you'll be patient with me, I think when we get to the end, uh, you'll see how it, it comes together. Uh, one of my professors in my, uh, in my seminary days, including one of the doctoral classes I took, was uh, Dr. Brian Chappell. And Dr. Brian Chappell is one of the smartest guys uh, theologically walking around on the planet today. He's a phenomenal preacher and expositor. Uh, and I had the privilege of sitting under him and learning from him. And in one of my doctoral classes, he made this statement. He said, God is not moved by our duty, but by our desperation. God is not moved by our duty, but by our desperation. I believe that that statement is true, but I want to explore it with you this morning. I don't want you to assume right off the bat that it's accurate just because a seminary president said it or that I might endorse it, but I want us to look at this passage of Scripture because I believe that all Dr. Chapel was doing when he was sharing this thought with us in that classroom on that particular day was reinforcing what God wants us to know already. There was a, a news, uh, TV news um, um, program a few years ago. This had to be 10 years ago. It was on the, the evening news, the local St. Louis news, where there was a reporter who was interviewing a guy who was standing outside a treehouse in southern Illinois. And this was not like a couple of, you know, two-by-fours put up in a tree. This was a very nice treehouse. And, and as I watched it, I thought what the reporter was doing was saying, wow, how'd you build it? And if other families want to, you know, do this, could they come look at yours or whatever? But that wasn't at all what the, what the uh, news story was about. As the reporter interviewed this guy, the guy is saying, you know, she, I turned up the volume and he's, and he's saying things like, you know, she's been up there now for over a week. Uh, we've been trying to get her to come down, but she won't come down. And I figure out that he's talking about his wife. And this is a dad with three boys who are between the ages of about four and 12 when boys are really kind of at their best or their worst, depending on what you think about little boys. And he's saying, you know, she just, she kind of got fed up with us. And she's tired of the dishes always being in the sink. She was tired of, you know, furniture getting broken and wrestling matches. She was tired of, you know, all the hours and hours she had to spend in the car driving here and there. And, and we just weren't kind of pulling our weight. We weren't cleaning up after ourselves. We're being slobs. And we, you know, we just kind of made a mess of the whole thing. And so she's been up there for over a week. And now we're, we're doing everything we can to try and get her down. We're doing the dishes every night. And I come out and I say, honey, we got the dishes done. You want to come in and look how nice the kitchen is? I say, the boys have done their, I'm teaching them how to do their laundry and put their clothes away and fold their clothes. And, and I make them take a bath every day. And, and he's going on and on about all these things he's done. And at the end, he says, I'm just trying to get her to come down out of the tree. I think that describes most people when it comes to their faith. I think most of us just want to know what it's going to take to get God to come down out of the treehouse and engage with us in an intimate relationship of faith. And I believe that in this particular passage, 
we're going to learn some things about all those things that we do or all those things that we believe we're doing that somehow motivate God to engage with us. You see, I think that, that, as I said, we're much like that family. We want God to come down and care for us. And the question is, will he? And if so, what will motivate him to come down and speak into my life and to be in a relationship with me? What will it take for God to come down and be in a personal relationship with you? I think the answer, which is summed up in, in Dr. Chapel's statement, may surprise you. So before we jump into this passage, let me, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your eternal word. I thank you for the truth that is found therein. Father, I thank you that what we learn in this next uh, 30 minutes or so is not uh, going to be a result of my work, but rather of your Holy Spirit. So Father, I I thank you for this text. As I've reread it again this week, I've been reminded of how quickly I lose uh, my bearings spiritually and how quickly I fall back into human behavior instead of faith. Father, I would dare say that's a message that uh, is important for each one of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Father, I confess my sin to you. I acknowledge that I don't love you as I should, nor my fellow man. But I pray, Lord, that you wouldn't let my shortcomings stand in the way of what you want to say to your people this morning. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come, that you would teach us by your grace and by your mercy. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. The first uh, statement that Dr. Chapel made is that God is not moved by our duty. Now, is that accurate? Uh, wouldn't you think that, that if you kind of came to church every Sunday, you ought to get something for that? <laughs> wouldn't you think if you maybe went so far as to teach one of the kids' Sunday school classes or be an usher or a greeter or on the setup takedown team or one of the people that does the music up here so wonderfully every week, wouldn't you think that that would count for something? Uh, if, you know, you give some time to the United Way or, or some way or, you know, volunteer to help and, and you know, uh, go on the homes of Hope trip, that, that God would kind of recognize that. And he kind of put a couple of check marks in your column. Is that really true that God is not moved by our duty? Well, in verses 7 through 10, Jesus is talking. Now he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his 12 little buddies, his apostles. So these are the, the key guys that are following him. And here's what he says to them. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. (laughs) I think... A lot of people spend their lives, and I think I spend some of my own personal energy trying to earn God's love, trying to do the things, uh, the good deeds or whatever, uh, that I think that I ought to do to have God look at me and go, you know, that Tom Ricks, he's a pretty good guy. And in a sense, we, we live with this idea of a quid pro quo. If I do certain things for God then he ought to bless me, right? If I pray enough, if I go to church enough, if I read the Bible enough, if I put some money in the offering plate, whatever, the, whatever you want to fill in the blank with there, whatever good deed you want to, you want to add, your, your duty, ought God not to give me something in return? And I believe what Jesus is saying in this particular part of chapter 17 is that that's the mindset of a servant. 
That's the mindset not of a child of God, but rather someone who looks at their life through the lens of duty. And what he's trying to explain to his disciples is that this duty does not impress God. The the person in this story, the master of the house, so to speak, is not impressed because the servant did just the very bare minimum of what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to get up in the morning and go out and work in the field. That was his job. He was supposed to take care of the sheep, take care of the crops. When he came back in, he was supposed to clean up, put put on his butler outfit, and he was supposed to wait at the table. That was his role. He was not doing anything special. And the master of the house certainly isn't going to say, you know what, you've had a tough day, you sit down and I'll serve you. He says, that's not how it works. The way it works is that the servant serves. And if you are thinking about getting into a relationship with God through your duty, you need to understand that that's going to be a very challenging path for you to follow. Think of it this way. Um, When we moved into our house in 1997 here in Kirkwood, uh, the movers came, and we had some things in storage, and we had some things at our house, and so they came out to our home that was out off of Weidman Road by Queenie Park, uh, and the foreman came up and knocked on the door, and we're here to move, and he had the paperwork, and we signed all the paperwork, and I wrote him a check for X amount of dollars, and I handed it to him. Now, he has become the servant, and I am the master. He's working for me, and he and his three little guys got there, and they hauled all the stuff out of our house. All morning, they packed it all up, and then by lunchtime, they were over at the new house, and they unpacked all of it, and they put it all away, and they set the sofa where it was supposed to go, and the dishes where they were supposed to go, and the bedrooms were set up, and they got all done, and I gave them a little tip. I gave them a little bit extra for their work, but at that point, they didn't plop down on the couch and say, hey, Tom, could you run to the fridge and get me a beer and turn on the Cardinals game? (laughs) Being a servant and doing the bare minimum of what you're required does not give you freedom into my home. It doesn't make you a partner with me. It simply means you've done that for which you were responsible in the first place. And so Jesus says, be careful if you're going to look at your relationship with God as an act of duty. And in fact, he says, if you're going to proceed down this path, you actually better know what the bare minimum requirement is of God. So what, if you were going to do your duty, what would it be? Well, back up to verse 1 through 4. Jesus says to his disciples, temptations are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So if you're here this morning and you want to know what the bare minimum is, you want to know what what you have to do just to get by, here it is. Number one, never cause anybody else to sin. Never let your actions, your attitude, your words, or your thoughts cause someone else to sin. Jesus uses the term little ones here, which could mean uh, somebody who is a young person in their faith, but more than likely, it simply means anybody who hears the message. So now you're responsible, at least for all the people in this room, that you never sin against them. I have a problem. My wife is here this morning listening to this sermon. She will tell you that she said very early on in our marriage, after about two or three years, you know, I never cussed until I got married. (laughs) That's not a reflection on her, friends. (laughs) I was causing her to lose her patience. 
And you think, oh, that Tommy's a wonderful guy. Well, guess what? He's not all that great. And he was very good at causing someone else to sin. So you know what? Before we get past verse 1, I'm out of the running. Maybe some of you are still there, okay? But your first responsibility is to make sure that everything you do has a positive influence on others for the kingdom of God. Secondly, always confront sin, okay? Never cause anyone to sin, but if your brother sins, rebuke him. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Now, I know that there are people in this room that this week somebody has sinned against them. Somebody has offended you. Somebody has hurt your feelings. Did you stand right up and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, we need to talk because what you just did was an offense to me and it was offense to God. And as God's servant who is doing his duty or her doing her duty, I must point this out to you. You're saying, Tom, have you lost your mind? <laughs> I don't want to go to somebody and I don't want to. That sounds judgmental to me. That sounds arrogant to me. And God's saying, no, you're just trying to help them. By showing them their sin, you're giving them the opportunity to see where, where they've made a mistake and come back to what God wants them to do and be. So if you're going to be the perfect, dutiful person, you must always, always confront sin, even if that makes you feel uncomfortable. Thirdly, always never cause another to sin, always confront sin, always forgive, which probably is the harder one. If, he, uh, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, I guarantee you, I've just crossed everybody in this room off this list. There's no way that you're going to be taken advantage of by somebody seven times in one day where they come back to you time and time again and say, I'm sorry, I blew it, I was wrong. By at least the third or fourth time, even the most saintly person in this room is going to say, you know what, I'm not a sucker. <laughs> I'm not that dumb. Forget it. I don't want to be around you anymore. You're an unhealthy person. I, you, you go your way, and I'm going to go mine. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> you want to fulfill your duty completely? You always forgive. And I think in these four verses, he's also reminding us that we must always confess our sin. The person who sins seven times comes back and asks for forgiveness. How often do you go back to your spouse, to your siblings, to your friends, to your boss, to your employee and say, you know what, I really blew it. I messed up and I need to ask for your forgiveness. I always tell uh, engaged couples in, in, in premarital counseling, I said, you know what, you should never tell your spouse you're sorry. You should always ask your spouse to forgive you because they are the hardest words that will ever come out of your mouth. And when you can get to the point where you really long for their forgiveness and you don't just want to brush it aside by saying, oh, I'm sorry, then you will begin to see the Spirit of God do things in your life. But Jesus says that ought to be the norm. You ought to just readily, quickly confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. So if you want to do your duty, friends, if this is the path that you would like to walk down and this is how you're going to engage with God, never cause anyone to sin, always confront sin, always forgive sin, and always confess sin. That's why verse 5 says this, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Let me tell you what that means in the modern Tom Ricks translation. Jesus, have you lost your mind? Are you kidding us? This is the bare minimum to be 100% all the time in all of these areas. You're telling me that that barely lets me scrape by, and Jesus says that's exactly right. To which I say this duty is literally impossible. And if we're going 
to enter into a relationship, if God's going to come down out of the treehouse and be our God, and we're going to be his people based on our duty, God is staying put and you and I are lost forever. But Luke 17 doesn't end with verse 10. There's a story about an event in the life of Jesus that begins in verse 11 and goes through 19, verse 19. And I believe it cracks the door open to help us understand if it's not duty, then what exactly is it that, to which God is calling us? So we have these, these words starting in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, that being Jesus, was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were there not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The apostles say, Lord, this is impossible. We cannot, we can't in any way complete this duty. And I believe this next experience in verses 11 through 19 clear up the question of what moves us beyond duty? What moves us truly into a relationship with God? And you'll notice that this story simply says that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem And as he's entering a village, there are 10 lepers who are standing by the road, and they're crying out, basically saying, have pity on me. If you look at verse 13, it says, they stood at a distance, lifted up their voices, said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In other words, there's nothing about me, Jesus, that that would cause you to help. I can't motivate you by my actions. I'm a leper. And being a leper in Jesus' day and age meant that you had some kind of skin disease that made you an outcast in society. You couldn't live with your family. You couldn't hold down a job. You couldn't go to the temple and worship when everybody else went to the temple on holy days. You had to, you had to stay out of that group. If you were walking down the street and there was someone who was not filled with leprosy walking toward you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, so that person would know that you were an outcast and that you should, they should cross the other side of the street. To avoid you, you were completely isolated, completely alone. You were an outcast of society. And so these men are yelling, have pity on me. Why? Because they knew that there was nothing within them that could be offered to Jesus. They simply were were pleading for grace. They were not demanding that God look at their duty, but rather they were asking God to please look at their desperate condition and have mercy. They were filled with desperation. And that's the second half of the statement, that God is moved by our desperation. And to be very clear about how this desperation manifests itself in our lives, look at verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now you need to understand what Jesus was saying to them. If you had a skin disease or any kind of of infirmity that kept you removed from uh, the Jewish culture, the, the community as a whole, and you got to the place where you got well, and you thought everything was okay, you would have to go and find the priest. He was the gatekeeper in the town that would look at you and sum up whether or not you were healed or not. And so when he says to the lepers, go and show yourself to the priest, what he means is go and talk to the person who can let you back in because you've been healed. 
Isn't it ironic that, that it says, Jesus, have mercy on us, and Jesus doesn't say, okay, you're healed. Jesus commands them to trust. Go show yourself to the priest. If you're standing there and you're the leper, go show myself to the priest. I'm still covered with spots. You're going to have to believe that Jesus can do what he says he's going to do. You're going to have to exercise just a little bit of faith. And the first word I would give you for desperation is this. Will you trust? The leper, when is told, without knowing he would be cleansed. When Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priest, the leper must have thought, well, if I have any hope, it's through you. So what do I have to lose? I might as well go. (laughs) That's not a mountain of faith, is it? What did the leper have to lose? If he goes to the priest, okay, he's got to walk back into town. It says that Jesus was between two villages. So it's probably a mile or two that way or a mile or two that way. Okay, so even if you don't feel very well and you're, you're not doing too well, you could probably still do that in half a day at the very most. So probably a couple hours in, go find the priest. Maybe that takes another half an hour. Hey, has anybody seen Joe the priest? Yeah, he's over there. Okay, go find Joe. Hey, is it okay for me to come back? That's the extent of the trust he had to exercise. Now, if you've been a leper all your life and you've been an outcast and you can't see your family and you can't hold down a job and you, you've resorted to begging and living on people's pity, that isn't much of a price to pay. That's, that's a faith that says, you know what? I got a couple hours. That doesn't seem to be too big a deal to me. But it did call for some amount of trust on the part of the leper. And what happens to what I call his what do I have uh, to lose faith? You know, he's thinking if it doesn't work out, I'm no worse off than I was before. What happens? As he went, as they went, they were cleansed. The first part of desperation is trust, but there's a second part of desperation that's found in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, didn't didn't go on to the priest, but turned back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. The second part of desperation is praise, which is the opposite of pride and arrogance. Praise is, is an act of humility. Praise is saying somebody else gets the glory, not me. Somebody else did the work, not me. I'm simply a recipient of something good that's happening, and I didn't bring any of it upon myself. Someone else did this in their mercy, and so I'm going to give them the credit. And that's what this leper does. He comes back, and he returns without ever reaching the priest. And he says basically to Jesus, whatever good that has happened, it's because of what you have done. Do I live a life of desperation? Do I live a life of trust? and praise. Notice what Jesus says. He congratulates this, this, uh, this leper in verse 19. He says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting that Jesus uh, acknowledges his desperation in the way that he actually gives this man credit for his own healing. This man had nothing to do with his healing except saying, what do I have to lose? Jesus and his power as God was the one that actually changed the cells in this man's body to make him whole again. And yet Jesus says to him, you know what? Your faith, that was the right thing to do. Good choice. Great decision. That's why you're well. So you go in peace. Jesus rewards and congratulates and endorses our desperation. And if you're like me, as you look at this passage with just a, just a, a bit of a, of a careful or critical eye, I don't mean critical in a negative sense, but kind of picking it apart, again, I think you come to the conclusion, you know what, that just isn't a whole lot of faith. 
It didn't take that guy. It wasn't like he said, you know, go halfway around the world, okay? He said, go down the street and find a priest and see if he'll give you a stamp of approval. That is not a whole bunch of faith, Jesus. And I think Jesus responds, you know what? That's exactly right. It's just a tiny little bit of faith. Verse 5, the apostle said, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said to them in verse 6, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and plunged into the planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The faith of a mustard seed is obviously metaphorical because mustard seeds are pretty small, right? Ever seen a mustard seed? Cindy went to the store for me yesterday and bought me a bottle of mustard seed. Would you like to would you like to see a mustard seed? Those of you that aren't chefs in the kitchen and wait, that didn't happen earlier when I pulled it off. That stayed in there. There we go. You know how many mustard seeds are in this little bottle? There's one. Can you guys sitting on the front row even see it? I, you guys in the back row, if your eyes are like mine, you can't even necessarily see that I'm holding up a, a small bottle, okay? There are roughly, and I use the word roughly because it was very early this morning when I was working on this, 1,372 mustard seeds in this jar, Okay. I think I'm off probably by a couple hundred, but quite frankly, I got tired and my math wasn't very good. Point being, there are enough mustard seeds for, eh, we probably got about 300, nah, probably about 200 folks in this room this morning. So we have enough for every man, woman, and child in here to probably have at least six mustard seeds, if not 10 or 12 before you leave. It's not a lot of faith. That's a very small amount. And Jesus says, you're right, but it's faith. It's not duty. Because you see, duty leads to a slave mentality. Duty produces things in people's lives like fear, anxiety, resentment. Do you think the servant liked coming in from the field and getting cleaned up and then having to be the butler? I'm guessing he probably didn't enjoy it very much. He was already tired. And I think the, the slave mentality, the servant mentality produces weariness. It produces a sense in my life that, that if you're not doing as much duty as me, that you're not very good. And instead, Jesus says, I want you to live as one who is desperate, one who needs me, because desperation leads to things like thanksgiving. (laughs) Desperation leads to things like trust. Desperation leads to to things like joy. I, I don't think you would ever tell anybody else about Jesus if you hadn't first been desperate for him, because Jesus doesn't fit into duty at all. Jesus only fits into a faith equation. And once you realize how desperately you are lost and how much you need a savior, you begin to experience the joy of his forgiveness and the joy of his mercy and the thankfulness and the worship and the praise begin to well up in you in a very, very natural way where when somebody says to you, is it duty to follow Jesus? You say, I don't even know what that means. I can't even begin to get my mind around that. I am just thankful that he would have mercy on a sinner like me. Dr. Chappell also told me a story about a a mom and a son who uh, had kind of gone their separate ways because uh, the son is a late teenager and and into his very early 20s had just absolutely made a mess of his life, had literally self-destructed with everything negative that you could possibly uh, self-destruct with, and he had gotten into all kinds of terrible, terrible uh, places and lifestyle to the point where his mom said, I, I just can't watch you do this to yourself. And they, they had to kind of say, I can't be around you if this is the way you're going to choose to live. And uh, Dr. Chapel talked about how this young man came back 
to to healing and to restoration and to uh, to to a, a new life, basically. And he said it all started one night when the son was in the the height of his you know just being messed up, and he snuck back into the family house, and he sat down on the couch and he pulled out a, a photo album. And he began to flip through the photo album. And, and, and we don't have photo albums anymore. For you guys that are under 20, you need to ask your parents what a photo album was. Facebook. It's, it's Facebook, okay? Um, and he began to look at these pictures of him when he was a little boy. And he saw himself all dressed up and all cleaned up. He saw himself in his little Boy Scout, Cub Scout uniform. He saw himself in his little, in his, you know, had his ball, a bat in his hand and had his glove and just looked, you know, just exactly right. It was all put together. And he sat there in his mess and in his pain and in his suffering and in all of the junk that he had made of his life. And his mom walked in and saw him sitting there. And she sat down at the end of the couch, didn't say anything. And the son said, Mom, when I look at these pictures, I see why it is that you can't love me anymore. He saw duty. As long as I wear my little ball cap and play by the rules, Mom will love me. As long as I clean up, dress up, go to church, mom will think, I'm okay. He had the mindset of a slave. And he was living in fear and resentment, pain, that probably most of us maybe will never experience. And in an incredible amount of godly wisdom, mom said, you don't understand, son. It's got nothing to do how you look, how you, how you decide to live your life because I love you anyway, and I will love you always. If you choose to destroy your life, I can't help that, but I love you in spite of that, and I'll never stop loving you. That's the power of the gospel, friends, because that's what God says to you. All of us folks out here trying to do our duty, God says, would you please just stop? I'm so perfect, you can't even begin to live up to my perfection. Don't try. You will, you will fall infinitely short. But when you begin to get your mind around that, then all you got to do is exercise the tiniest bit of trust and be desperate for me. And I'll always hear that prayer. I believe that our culture is filled with churches and disciples who have chosen duty over desperation. And I believe that the church has become insipid and powerless and irrelevant to our culture, not because the culture has changed, but because we preach not the gospel, but we preach a duty that is no gospel at all. And it's not what saved you, and it's not what saved me. And by God's grace, I believe we need to repent of our duty and turn again to that which will save us desperation, God's grace. Will you pray with me?